podcast one production. Hi, I'm Christopher Pine, and welcome to Pine Time. For years, I've been on the receiving end of a barrage of questions, some would say abuse, from the media and other politicians. But I've tried to keep it together, and hopefully I've had a successful career in politics. But now I'm out of the game, and I'm risking it all to step out of my comfort zone and embrace a new world of media, to turn the tables on my guests so you can hear for the first time stories that you've never heard before as they succumb to what some people are kindly describing as the pine effect. So listen now as I talk to media veteran and famous journalist Barry Cassidy. So my guest today is Barry Cassidy. Uh, Barry is one of Australia's most famous journalists in the last quarter of a century, uh, starting his career as a cadet in 1969. He's held most of the most sought-after roles in media in Australia for a journalist, as well as five years as a stint with the press, the press secretary to Bob Hawke when he was the Prime Minister, which placed Barry at the centre of what was a really interesting and reforming government and time in Australian history. But he's also probably best known in the modern sense uh, as the anchor of the ABC's Insiders program for 18, 19 years, from 2001 to 2019. And he's just recently decided to hang up his microphone and retire from media, but not from life, like me retiring from politics, but not from life. And Barry, thank you very much for joining us today. Well, thank you for the introduction, Chris. (laughs) So you chose to go into Bob Hawke's staff as his press secretary in the days when the press secretary was basically full-time with the PM, and that was 1986. Did you think at the time that this was going to be hard to go from politics back to media, or was it a much less hyper-partisan period and you thought, this is just a good career progression? No, it was a very tough decision, right. and that's why I knocked it back the first time it was offered to me. Right. It was offered about a year before that, which was a, a little difficult because when they come to you and offer you a job like that, you sort of feel a bit compromised then, in a sense. But mm. in any case, I judged no. If I was to do that, I might lose a, poli- a career as a political journalist, so I didn't do it. And they came back to me again, and Bob Hawke got personally involved this time, and I, I figured then that if I was... Because I, I was fascinated with, with politics um, by then, uh, having not grown up with politics at all. But by that stage, I'd been in political reporting for about seven or eight years. And I felt that if I was ever going to experience politics from the inside and up close, then Bob Hawke would be the person I'd want to do it with because I, I knew him well from, from Melbourne days. Uh, we share a few interests and I just figured I would get along with him and, and I admired what he was doing. I thought he was a standout. So... The second time round, I did it with my eyes wide open. I knew that there was a real prospect that I wouldn't get back into journalism and I, and I had to take that risk. And especially because when I joined, I think he was 46, 54 behind in the polls. Right. And so there was a, a chance that I was only going to be around for about nine months anyway. 86. Yeah, well, of course, he went on yeah, to win in 87. In 87, but he came from behind. That was thanks to Joe Bjorki-Peterson. Yeah, that was absolutely what it was <laughs> all about. Bizarre. Joe Bjorki-Peterson just divided the whole show. Absolutely. Um, made a mess of uh, the whole show. ruined any 
anything that John Howard tried to do in 87. It's the Queensland disease, I think. Yeah, well, it's um, they just think differently. They do, don't they? <laughs> to the rest of us. So that's that's what, what happened. I, I took the risk, well aware of the very thing that, that you, were, you were talking about, and, and even after four years in the job, and I left it, and I felt I can't walk back into political journalism, I know that. What did you do then? Well, I, I wanted to build a bit of a bridge between what I'd been doing and, and then getting back into journalism in another way. And that, after I was in, in the United States, I was only there freelancing, uh, doing a bit of radio, and um, the Australian offered me a position, along with John Lyons as the correspondent, right. based in, in Washington. Mm. I was doing that as a freelancer. So that got me back in, and, and then Channel 10 offered me a, a position uh, to, to launch a couple of programs. But you had no regrets about joining Bob Hawke? No, I didn't because and you loved it. Uh, yeah, I, I had some trepidation to begin with, but it was an amazing experience. And Bob I mean, is an amazing, was an amazing person. Yeah, of and it was different then. It was everything was smaller, tighter. The the teams were tighter. And it was and, old Parliament House. Oh, there were only two press secretaries. You know, it was <laughs> me and one other. Now they have a team. Uh, yeah, and you know, junior ministers would have more than two press secretaries, oh, wouldn't yes. they? Yeah. And so it it was very different. But old Parliament House was 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 wonderful, and yeah. the atmosphere there was. was great. I worked in old Parliament House. Who with? Bizarrely, because I was very young, with Amanda Vanstone. <laughs> Is that right? When I was well, a university student, yeah. I wrote her this really sad note in handwriting saying, if you were smart, you'd employ me in your staff, even as a volunteer, and I will fly myself to Canberra, stay with my cousins, Andrew and Mary, for the opportunity to work in politics. And I was in first year uni, so I was 1985, so I was about 18 years old, and I didn't know that she knew my parents. Uh-huh. So she rang my mother and said, I've had this bizarre letter from, because she was just elected as a senator, from Christopher. And uh, my mother said, oh, you should give him a guy. And, of course, we've been we've been best friends really ever since. She's the godmother of one of my children. So, so you, you didn't understand at the time that if you're going into the public service, you don't have to pay your own way to Canberra. <laughs> You don't have to find your cousins to live with. Can you imagine these days saying to somebody, look, if you fly yourself to Canberra, stay with your cousins, I'm not going to pay you a dollar, but you'll get to work in Parliament House. Generation Y would think you were joking. Yeah, exactly. And I thought I'd I'd got the golden ticket. (laughs) Yeah. And I used to fly myself there in in the uni holidays. And the good thing about the old Parliament House was that everybody was together. So we'd walk out of our office, which was tiny. Mm. Yep. You'd run into George Georges and Nick Bolkus and Fred Cheney and Robert Hill, and yeah. they'd all have a drink together, you know, at some stage during the week. And There was a lot of that cross-party chatter that went on and socialising, and the, the, the non-members bar was a place where everybody could meet. And everybody including was there. With the journalists. The attendants, and, the journalists, yeah. the MPs. Yep. Howard got rid of the non-members bar. In, um, yeah, the, and it's too big now anyway. Well, uh, of course, you couldn't get away with anything in the old apartment house. Mm. I mean, yep. leadership spills, everyone knew about them. You just sensed when there was something going Whereas on. Whereas these you days, could just tell. you can have these leadership spills that have happened in the last 10 years, mm-hmm. and you don't find out about them until like 24 hours beforehand. The, the Greens had a spill, remember, for the deputy leadership, and nobody well, knew, about knew about it for about two it. weeks. Michelle Grattan <laughs> bemoans the new Parliament House for this very good reason. Yep. Anyway, we've got off on a bit of a tangent. Yeah. So Bob, <laughs> Bob was one out of a box. I mean, there's a couple like that over the last quarter of a century who've been out of the box, and I can see why working for him would have been, you know, tremendous exhilarating. Hmm. If I could just give an example of why it was that because he was proactive, that clearly, and and since his death, there's been a lot said about how he uh, hated racism and bigotry in any form. And 
He actually was pro- proactive, though, in terms of apartheid in South Africa. He didn't wait for the issue to hit our shores or to find a reason. He he, he went out and pursued the issue, and uh, and he went to two togams and eventually got a, 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 a Wolfenson, a Jim Wolfenson, yes. on, on board who put together a... An Australian? A, yeah, and he put together a, a, a global uh, boycott on South Africa, and the South African foreign minister has since said that that was the dagger that... Uh, killed off apartheid. And and so that's what I admired about him, that, that mm. he was prepared to take on an issue, whether mm. or not it was there was any necessarily any political gain for him. And there was no he felt white, strongly about it. And he wasn't a white bread politician. No, no. And he had a lot of flaws yeah. <laughs> which were he put them out there. Well, he said he did. <laughs> you know, one of the great responses that he had was, it's all in the book. Well, of course it wasn't. Blanche wrote the book. Yeah, right. And she left out one or two key points. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which probably best left out. Yes. Uh, <laughs> so he, he didn't actually put it all out there, but but he, that's certainly, the, the public presence was of a guy who was wide open and uh, and accessible mm. and, and, and likeable. And he was loved by the public, whether you were liberal yep. or labour. Yep. I remember when he wept, um, uh, when he was talking about his daughter and uh, her addiction on the television, and I said to my mother, um, oh, God, the Prime Minister's crying. She said, isn't it marvellous? Yes. <laughs> she loved it. And she was a massive liberal, you know. So she said, yes, he's just like us. We've all got, you know, every family has issues and problems to deal with. It's and an interesting question, though, when you say, does it, does it matter when they cry, if a politician cries? Mm. I got the same response when he cried over the um, Tiananmen Square massacre. Yes, yes. I was in the office watching it, yeah. and the staff turned to me, you know, the receptionists and the rest and said, is that okay or is that bad? They wanted to know how that <laughs> yeah. played politically. Well, of course it was fine. And I said, that's Bob. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So that was obviously a very professionally satisfying period and then you went back into the media. But you stayed with Insiders for 18, 19 years. Hmm. You really created it. I did, yep. Yeah. Was that the most satisfying period in your yeah, professional life? Yeah, it was life? because I created it, because mm. it was my idea and the format was mine and... And I introduced it and then hosted it. Um, and really the idea was to, um, people said that that genre was covered on a Sunday morning and it wasn't. It was covered by interviews. You know, mm. And I wanted to do a whole lot more and, and really almost celebrate politics in a way. But the, the key to it, I think, and, and why it succeeded for so long is that we condensed a week's work got rid of the trivia, got rid of that that didn't matter and just focused on that that, that did matter but laced it with a bit of humour. Mm. Um, we didn't take ourselves too seriously, a bit like yourself on the floor of the parliament. You know, that's, <laughs> that was the approach that we took and, and it works. Um, and, you know, it just kept growing an audience. To this day, it's still growing. So how did you let it go? Well, timing is everything, as you know, mm. and, and you really, you know, I think you said when, when you left that um, you've, you've got to go on your terms and not when they're asking you to go. Sure. And I had that in mind and, and I felt that was that was fair enough in my position as well, that that I had to go while I was still comfortably in the job and not look as if I was getting out because I was losing it. <laughs> but apart from that, I'm almost 70 and, and what I, I've got other things I want to do. And you can't properly explore those things while you're dedicated to a particular program. Well, it was probably I mean, something you actually had to do every weekend, you know. Yeah, it ties you down. Like yep. You can't get you can't get out of the country at all. Very um, hard to give it away to somebody else in the short term. Yeah, you, you can't go off at weekends, and there's so many weddings and things that I've missed. You know, if they were out of town, I couldn't go. If they were in Melbourne, it would be fine. But, you know, it was a very and restrictive. you still did it for 18, 18 19 years. years. Yep. yep. Which is long. So now, now that you're retired from the job, you can tell us what the secret source was of your interviewing style. <laughs> Because you'd be well, surprised to hear that 
I was always very trepidatious about saying yes to insiders. And I would often say no because <laughs> I knew that I wouldn't be able to mm. wriggle off the hook. And, I, and a politician, well, I always used to think, I can do that interview because I know what I'm going to say already and I can mm. get out. <laughs> There's a back door for me to get out somehow. Yeah. But with your interviewing style, I often used to think, I can't see where my escape's going to be with Barry, so I don't think I can do that. Now, have other people said that to you? Look, we have trouble getting interviews at times from people and they, they give some sort of dodgy excuse and then they'll bob up on Sky on the Friday or do yeah, something right. on the Saturday. And I think, well, what, what's the problem? It, it may be that uh, if you know you're going to do a newsy interview on Sky, if you go mm. on Sky any day of the week, you know it's about the news of that day. Mm-hmm. So you can pretty much anticipate the questions and you're ready for it and they don't last long. Um, but with inside Insiders, not so much 7.30, but insiders. I, I sort of hoover up the week. But I also, and this, this had been a practice of mine for a very long time, I keep material. I, I think one of the weaknesses in, in journalism is that we just move on too quickly. Very much that so. That we move on to the, that day's story too, too quickly and we forget, overlook something, the hooks, the hooks in the system that were there a week or two ago yeah. or even longer. And so uh, when Christopher Pine turns up, I've got, something that I might have prepared weeks ago. That I've probably forgotten about. Yes, and, and, and I think it's worth going back to. <laughs> yeah, well, that's really wicked. <laughs> well, it's not wicked. Because I that's think not it's... the plan. The plan <laughs> is, uh, you know, you go out, the PM's office says or the leader's office says, you know, you're, you can do insiders on Sunday morning. Yep. You prepare for all those issues that are happening mm-hmm. that day, get your lines worked out, you drive to the studio, the PM or the leader rings you and says, what are you going to say about this? What are you going to say about that? And then I used to sit there thinking, shit, I wonder what Barry's got the first question's going to be because it's not going to be what I'm expecting at all. And then you'd come up with something like, why do you think the Prime Minister did X, Y and Z? And I'd think, I'm not a commentator on the Prime Minister. That's not supposed to be the first question. Well, that can be your first answer. (laughs) (laughs) You can try that as an answer. That's what I used to say. say, I'm not a commentator, Barry, but you'd never let me off the hook. Yeah. um, You say that the Prime Minister phones. I've found that with so many ministers and and with previous governments as well, that the last phone call they take before an interview on Insiders is with the Prime Minister and the first one they take afterwards. They're going down on the lift (laughs) and, and they get this sort of critique from the Prime Minister. Oh, I didn't used to get too many afterwards. You you usually get one afterwards if you've stuffed it up. Yeah. I would get one before, like a sort of prep, like a sort of box about to go into the (laughs) ring, which is what it was like, and then after, but I did very rarely rarely heard afterwards, not because Mm. I was flawless, but they probably thought I was impervious to criticism as well. Well, there are one or two get regular phone calls after they get Is off there. Right? I don't know what that says. <laughs> I think that's a bad <laughs> sign, whether, myself. Maybe they're the, the, the so, favourites of the so team. So you obviously thought about that. So yep. Your staff didn't have KPIs to find a, a a right turn that nobody was expecting. You did that yourself. No, look, we'd, we'd occasionally chat through interviews, but I, I just had a, a working practice of my own of um, pretty much researching my you own keep interviews a and, and thinking them through myself. I do that um, for speeches. Yeah. something I'll look into something and I'll think... If you That'll store material up, one day. you never know. You store it up, you end up with a mountain of material. And, you do. You know, somebody my age ends up with it all piled up on a desk rather than on a computer or a laptop. But That's the old-fashioned way. Yeah. But I'll often be thinking about a speech for in the chamber or out in the industry or whatever it might be, and I'll recall something that I thought that I saw weeks ago hmm. that I thought would be quite a useful libretto for the speech. Yep. 
you know, as mm. you say, the problem with the media is, well, not the, I hate people have the problem with the media because it sounds nostalgic, but the media have to move on to so many new stories constantly during the day. Yep. And that's great for the politician, by the way, Barry. It sure it is. Because you get to move on, yep. you know. The problem with that black hand disaster a couple of years ago when I almost went under the chariot wheels when I gave that speech at the factional dinner in Sydney mm. was I kept expecting it to move on, but it didn't, you know. It's yeah. hanging around for days. Yeah, that's I, when you know you have a problem. That's exactly right. And I started because I know Malcolm is so well, and so do you, and I thought... As long as it moved on, Malcolm was going to move on, but it's hanging around. Yeah. I'm going to start getting into trouble now. Yeah. <laughs> and so I decided to ring everybody and apologise. So I rang all the members of the House of Representatives from our side to say how sorry I was about distracting the government. And Annabelle Crabb wrote a column saying that the, the world has stopped turning on its axis. The first time in 25 years, Christopher Pine has said sorry for something. <laughs> And it was so confounding that even Malcolm had to admit that I'd sort of taken off in a different tangent and we could all move on. Yeah. But, you see, the, the fact the media move on is your shield in politics these days. Yeah, and, and it bothers me, and that's that's why I, I can go back over some of these issues when in, in my interviews. I just think that's, that's a responsibility. It's good. So another person who's like that is Lee Sales. Don't you think? Yes. And, and again, it's the format lends itself to that it because does. you don't mm. feel as obliged to, to go for the news of the day. She probably more so than me mm. because mm. it's a daily program and if there's a big story around, she can't neglect it. In my case, Sunday's a bit of a loose day anyway and, and you, you can really just backtrack and, uh, and take a much broader... You can take your time. ...much broader um, look at things. And, and so, the, yeah, I think my interviews for that reason are less predictable. Very much so. So the last thing going through your mind before you ask the first question on the Insiders interview, what would you be, would you actually genuinely be thinking, what can I ask that he's not going to, or he or she's not going to be expecting? No, you know what I often do is I'm anticipating what the answer will be and I'm thinking one question ahead. Right. I'm thinking what will be my response. See, the advantage that we have over you guys. Like a card player. Yeah, we have notes. Yeah. You don't. <laughs> and that's a hell of an advantage for us. But also we have transcripts. And, and if I'm asking a question that you've already been asked, then I can anticipate your answer because I've read it. You said it two, two or three days ago. Mm. So not only can I anticipate, anticipate <laughs> it, I've got the next question not ready. Not point of view. No. No and, camouflage. I don't know. The, the cards are stacked against you, no doubt about it. But then <laughs> you're the decision maker and you're the one who has to be accountable. Yes. And is that what you enjoyed about your role? The, it, was that the adrenaline of insiders or journalism is... You know, unpacking government decisions or policy or it, was it pursuing the story that was the gotcha moment or, I mean, what you went into journalism in 69, mm. uh, you're still there in 2019. What was the thing that kept you driving you on thinking I'm doing something that's useful? Um, I suppose that only kicked in when I started doing political reporting because right. before then I was doing police rounds and courts and sport and... Getting you know, the photograph from the really bereaved family. Very much, mm. yes. But it's the bread and butter of journalism, but it did, in the end it doesn't matter very much. But the more I got into political reporting and the more senior my role, yeah, then I started to think about that, that we had a real obligation to make sure 
with me, it was always when I was a reporter as opposed to the uh, host of Insiders, was to make sure that people understood the story. Mm. Because too often we assume so much knowledge and people are sitting there watching the news at night. They're not watching for a political story. They're watching a news bulletin. And when mm. the political story comes up, we've got an obligation to make sure we take people with them. Mm. And so I, I worked really hard at trying to retell the story. Maybe it looked a bit simplistic at times, but I think I think that was important to, to kick. And I've done that, I think, on Insiders, and I get it all the time now, especially since I've left from people saying that what they appreciated about it is they know a lot more about politics now than they ever did. Mm. And they learnt that through um, through the, the manner in which we went, we go about it on, on Insiders. And also the panel, yep. because the panel would unpack what politics, what was behind the story for a way that mm. hadn't done, been done before. As you said, yep. the Sunday programs... They were, or the, you know, a current affairs or whatever they might be, have a particular role. But the, the, yours was the first show that had journalists unpacking why things happen in Canberra. What was the story mm. behind the story? Why would they do that? You know, why would they push somebody under the bus but not another person under the bus, you know? Yeah, yeah see, they get, if, if the daily programs get up ahead of steam about a particular issue and away they go, whereas Insiders is, is an opportunity to go back over the week. So it's, it's, it's just a different feel altogether. And, and it is an opportunity just to better explain that issue. And, uh, and some of the journalists that we've had over the years on, uh, on Insiders, I think, are the, the, you know, the pick of the crop. So how are you going to replace that huge part of your life? Well, I've got some ideas. <laughs> uh, um, well, you've written books before. Would you believe you, you know that I'm, I'm an academic at heart, and I've just been <laughs> I've, um, I've just been appointed an adjunct professor at RMIT. Oh, excellent! It's an honorary position, but what it is, it's an opportunity just to go and um, you know sort of irregularly talk to some uh, journalism students and excellent. try and encourage them, and and there'll be an absolute focus on politics, of course, and I'll try and explain the, the details of, of that to them. But that's, so there's a bit of um, there's a bit of that in the in the works. Um, you want to do some travel? I, I'm already doing some travel, and I plan to do a bit more. But if I have got an idea, like for a, for another program, but right. it's different. It it won't restrict me anywhere near, um, like insiders did. If it if it gets up, and that's why I don't want to go into any detail because I'll fall flat on my face if it does. <laughs> um, but and we might it, steal it. it. It won't restrict me in the <laughs> in the way that insiders did. It might be a series of eight programs and. And then we'll see beyond that. Yeah. Well, you're probably due for a bit of a break. And is Heather going to travel with you too, or is she going to keep working? Well, the question is, will I travel with her? Then I get <laughs> asked that all the time. She travels the back roads of Australia. She and, does. And, Everyone uh, loves her show, of I actually went on, because I finally had the opportunity, and I went on part of a shoot up near Mackay, and she's doing a, a back roads on... Um, carnival people, oh, show right. people. Okay, I saved uh, the carny uh, people's school. The school? Yeah, when I was the Minister of Education. Well, that's mm. a real focus in, in her piece. I oh, don't is know that whether right? Christopher Pine gets a mention or I not. I don't know. But what a, what a, if you did that, then they well lost, done. Because they lost their funding, you see. Yeah, it's so important. No, yeah. yeah. There was one woman that she spoke to um, who can't read or write, but her daughter is a doctor. Right. And she was taught... In, in that in the carnival, carnival school. school. It's a caravan. Well, the Queensland just... government cut the funding. Right. And uh, I was the Minister of Education, and I'm not sure why. I think, funnily enough, I think Bill Shorten was the person who raised it with me. And uh, Well, he's certainly taken some credit, I think, along the way. Or oh, at well, least it might have been. They, they mentioned him in dispatches, yeah. It's a long memory. Yeah. And I think it might have been a hangover from the previous government that hadn't been sorted out, and I was the Minister of Education, and I sorted it out and got them the funding they needed to keep going. Mm. Because obviously, you know, the children have got to be educated. Yep. Uh, obviously, and mm. 
It's not their fault that their parents have decided to work in a carnival. So they can't still got to send take them off to a private kids. school and no. you know, forget about them for or the rest of the year. School. Oh, that's an interesting yeah. story. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Well, you so, should tell Heather to ask them about me. <laughs> the money. Exactly. There's not much credit in this business, I can tell you. So, um, obviously, you've been a journalist over 50 years, and I have particular views about social media and how it's changed everything, but I'm also loathsome of people who are nostalgic about the good old days. Mm. What's changed so dramatically in the last, say, quarter of a century since you had started since you left Bob's place and Bob's mm. office and so forth, that you think is the most noteworthy changes in media and reporting? I, I think the biggest change in, in media and reporting, and I've noticed a, a big change that reflects media attitudes too in, in the way politics operates, but with the media specifically, it was about 10 years ago, I think, when newspapers, and particularly the Australians, started hiring non-journalists on their off-ed pages. Now, like I'm, not, I'm not saying that people who are not journalists <laughs> shouldn't have a, a view. But what happened is that they kind of became journalists um, through the process and they were far more partisan than previous uh, commentators and analysts. And so this partisanship started seeping through everything. And uh, and now you see it all the time. You see it in all the discussion programs, not just in the newspapers. I think that was quite a dramatic impact and I think that's why politics now is a bit nastier than it's ever been And, and it's certainly more partisan. Um, and it, it's for that reason. And there, there used to be a bit of, um, I, I think there was a kind of a brotherhood or a sisterhood between the journalists and that that's broken up now because oh. because of that sort of partisan divide between, uh, you know, commentators. And with with the journalists, it's changed as well because um, like people like me who, who might have once worked with, with a government, um, I, got, I managed to get back into mainstream journalism, but now they tend to go straight into the commentary an analysis field. Right. And and they then play a very hard line, take a very hard line position and they're hired because of the political position that they adopt. And too many programs now do that. They hire people for political positions. That's quite um, obvious. Yeah. And it's, it, again, it's just it's the partisanship. And so there's no real discussion about getting heads together. There's no discussion about compromises when even the journalists and the analysts can't even sit on a couch and talk with a sense of compromise. But there's also, you know... There are some television shows, which remain nameless, where the commentators are basically egging their side of the argument on and pushing them ever further to an extreme position. Yep. Which is not journalism at all. No. And it's if, if it's happening in journalism, then it's sure it's going to happen among the politicians. And, you know, we all know, and the public cries, cries out for it the whole time, that they do want a sense of teamwork that they want the two parties to talk to one another more often and they all say that they will, but they don't. Well, I was regarded as old school because I had friends on the Labor side of the of the chamber mm. and like Anthony Albanese or Richard Miles or, yep. you know, Tanya Plibersek. It didn't mean that I was, you know, uh, a, a soft lefty or something. It didn't mean that I was uh, uh, pulled my punches, you know, in the chamber or the media mm. or in speeches. But I could see that they had a different view about the way the country should be run, but they actually were genuine about what they wanted to achieve. They weren't setting out to be evil. And so, you know, when I retired and gave my valedictory speech, a lot of them came over and were very, very nice. And a lot of the new members thought, well, Pine's not really, is he really one of us or not? You know, why are these people being so nice to him? But, you know, you shouldn't, in in a country where you have compulsory voting and preferential voting, you, we, we can only really end up with either us or Labor in power, right? Yep. So, you know, 
you've got to give them some good faith to yeah. hand over the government if the, if the Liberals lose in my case and hope that they're not going to completely stuff up the country. Yeah, you know, going all the way back to when I worked for Hawke, oh, before that with Malcolm Fraser, you know, after question time, he would have in his office quite regularly um, Anthony Sinclair and Nixon, right. the three big hitters in the yeah. National Party. Yeah. No Liberals. No. <laughs> Maybe Tony Street, you know, was yeah. foreign minister for a while, might, might drift in, but they would be the three that he would get together after question time. And now you wouldn't get that with the Liberals and the Nationals to the same extent. But with Bob Hawke, and, and you know how draining question time can be. Mm. And so he always had this half an hour after question time and he might go through the form guide, have a cigar or whatever. Yeah. But quite often he would say, get Clary around. Now, Clary Miller. Oh, yes, Clary was Miller. Lisa Miller's father. Right. Who's now with the ABC, Lisa. And um, Clary was an old National Party. He was a right, National Party from guy. From Queensland, yeah. yeah. And Clary would come around, and the two of them would sit there and just chew the fat for half an hour. He might have even been Wide Bay. Yes, I think it was Wide Bay. What was his yeah. particular affection with Clary Miller? He just liked the guy. Is that right? And they were just, just had fun, just talking politics I together. I must admit, I couldn't do anything after question time every day. <laughs> I always just did nothing for about half an hour, an yeah. hour. People tried to schedule meetings at half past three. I used to be demented because I thought, uh, no, I'm mentally, I'm kind of, as leader of the house, I've done nothing all day except worry about the house. Yeah. I really got to have a bit of a mental Oh, it's space. an exhausting job. And I wonder why politicians put so much store in it, really. But I, but you see it with, with all of them. They, it's, it's, the, it's maximum stress levels yeah. the whole and time. You can't marinate in that stress forever. Yeah. That's why I had to retire. I thought, no, 25 years is long enough, 26 years. Yep. It's interesting what you say about the non-journalists in the media because, of course, when Richard Miles and I started that show, that very famous yep. high-rating show on Sky Television. Well, it certainly broke new ground. <laughs> Politicians <laughs> interviewing journalists. Thank you, Barry. Um, it, was a, it was an extraordinary experience. We had... Four seasons, I think. But yep. the journalists were really put out about that show. Yes. They were really put out. And good friends of mine in the gallery, you know, were quite caustic about me and Richard doing that show. And I used to say, well, why do you care? They said, because you're not journalists. Yes, but you what see... What do you think you're doing? There are so many journalists who want to be politicians and so many politicians who want to be journalists. And <laughs> you, you just took the, took the leap. It was bizarre. But <laughs> so they I'll were, do both. Some of them were really angry. And, um, you know, whether it worked or not is a moot point. We, um, we finished it up when, obviously, I announced I was retiring. But it's interesting mm. you trace that to your... Um, as one of the big changes in media, because you didn't say it was social media that's changed everything, because I think that what happened with the social media and the internet is that, one, it made everybody a journalist and a photographer for that matter, but it's really put the pressure on the journalist to come up with so many new stories all the time to keep changing over what was on the website the people who were specialists in an area, like an education specialist or the health mm. specialist or the defence specialist, I mean... They didn't really. They haven't got the role they used to have, and I worry that they're not. They're not going to exist in the future. Yeah, the ABC's always been very conscious of that, and we haven't always got it right. Uh, but specialist reporters, if you can afford them, if you can, because the journalism is more expensive now, and the revenue is not there outside mm. of the ABC. Um, it's not there like it used to be. So it's harder to have specialist journalists, but it's important. Very. I mean, you, you know, well, as a minister. Andrew if you've, Green. Yeah, if you've got an Andrew Green there. I mean, it works both ways. I mean, you know that you've got a journalist there who knows defence and just takes it seriously, but mm. he also knows it well enough to, to, to know where the vulnerabilities are yeah. and to go for it when he needs to. 
But I didn't mention social media because it's a, well, it's 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 often discussed. Mm. But I don't think it's the, it's the biggest change that it's occurred. I, I do think though that it can be a very useful tool. I mean, some people love Twitter, some hate it. Mm. Um, <laughs> it's, it's an incredibly useful tool for me. Yes, is it? Um, but what it's done is, of course, again polarised, mm. and people. People just want to get in there and have a fight. They can't, if they see something they don't agree with, they can't just walk past it. It's unbearable. And you know, Ricky Gervais, the, um, the mm. comedian, mm. tweeted the other day that he said, this Twitter thing is, is ridiculous. So I've got two million followers. I've got an obligation to tell them what I think. But I'm just talking to them. I'm telling them what I think. You know, leave me alone. He said, it's like you're walking through the city square and you see a big billboard and the billboard says guitar lessons and it's got a telephone number. Well, you can look at that and walk on. Sure. What you don't do is pick up the phone, ring the number and say, listen, pal, I'm not interested in your <laughs> effing guitar lessons. No, it's bizarre, right? isn't it? And that's what people do. They can't resist the fight. Mm. If they see something, they've got to have a crack. And why? I can't understand it at all. I mean, the anonymity is a problem, but it's all too late. There's nothing we can yeah. do about it. Yeah. I don't even know my Twitter and Facebook passwords anymore because... Mm. I used to have staff that used to do all that. I do Instagram myself, though, I must say, because I like Instagram. I think it's number one now, isn't it? So if somebody says something nasty about me on Instagram, I just block them. Yeah, but it's not that kind of... Instagram's not there to be nasty. It's no, a different... It's Twitter's, Twitter's, a, cheerful. Twitter's there for the nasty people. But, and why? Why do we want to have a forum for nasty people? How often said Anthony Albanese that when we were first politicians and we used to be handing out our leaflets at the supermarket... Yep. You know, there'd be people there who were obviously angry about something, but we wouldn't know, right? They would mm. just walk past us and go into the supermarket and they wouldn't take our leaflet or yep. our shopping bag. Yep. But now they're on Twitter. Yep. And we know that they're out there because they're really angry on Twitter. Yes. And it's kind of unsettling yeah. to and know that there's that much anger out there. And, and journalists fighting among themselves yes, all the time. Do they do that too on Twitter? Oh, it's hostile. The Twitterverse? Yeah. Or the you face yeah, no, they I call go it. at each other all the time. And again, it just adds to that sense that, you know, there's there's no there's no appetite for, for people getting together and sorting things out, you know. Yeah. Um, but I have to say in the press gallery these days when I chat to my journalist friends, it's a grumpy place, the, the Parliament House these days. Yep. It's the hyper-partisanship has not been a positive thing. Yeah, and that's what's happened over the last 10 years. It's... It has it's not the last as much 10 fun years anymore. Has been a funny, has been a funny time. Uh, when they write the history of the last ten years, it won't be a pretty one. Hopefully, it's going to change now that we've changed our rules and the coalition and Labor's changed their rules. Mm. And hopefully, Polly's after the last uh, polls being so wrong so often, they'll stop listening to the polls and making their decisions based on mm. you know the, the news poll or whatever the poll is, because that's been really unsettling. For the, me. the pollsters have got a have got a problem here. They're to restore their, their credibility somehow. Mm. You said before about the journalists uh, and especially journalists. We were lucky in defence because there are still a lot of defence journos. Not many younger ones. Mm. Andrew Green would be one of the youngest. Some of the older journalistic people are still writing about defence. And I would have them around in my office at least two or three times a year. We established the Defence and National Security Journalists Association, which was just the group who used to come around to my office for a drink. And I would use them as a resource because, as you said, they could be really unhelpful or they could be helpful. And if you treated them badly, there'd be no reason for them to be, to talk to you about things seriously. But if you said to them, you know, these are the reasons we're doing things and you should look out for this, then they'd think, well, you know, it's a professional relationship and it's not a partisan relationship between the journalist and the minister. So you're not manipulating them here, you 
Well, no, because they'd still yeah. criticise me regularly. But the closer they become to you, right, then the less likely they'd be, wouldn't they, to be yeah. critical? That was part of the well, idea. Yes. <laughs> and, and this is why journalists too Which often worked. have meals with politicians. They become quite close to them. And Surprising, I, a, I can be surprisingly charming, you see, Yes, Barry. well, you see, you, you can be, and, <laughs> <laughs> and, and very entertaining as well. That's like why the, you kind of, you know, you inspired Hugh Parkinson on, on Insiders. Oh, and yes. Hugh Parkinson is absolute genius. You know, the work that he did. I'm glad you he, raised he, that. He got seven million hits with no. his Trump piece because it, it penetrated the United States. Right. But the very first piece that he did, um, and he came to me with a bit of a pilot, but it ended up going to air, was uh, The Fixer. The Fixer, And gosh. he put you into Star Wars. He did. <laughs> and, and the other thing that you should <laughs> be credited hilarious. for is he doesn't like going back to the same theme twice. He did it three, he did three, three he times. He did the Star Wars. You see, you've been counting. He did it three times. It's one of the few things exactly. my children thought was useful about my political <laughs> career was the fact that I was I was inserted into Star Wars yep. memes. Yep. And then he did a lovely one when I left too. I did a very nice the retirement farewell. one, the, the farewell yeah. one. Yeah, it's great stuff. But the, I must say the Star Wars ones were very amusing because that Fixer interview was an absolute fiasco. <laughs> But it didn't come across as such. You know? I if, said to the my media advisor when I walked out, I said, Rory, that was an absolute disaster. <laughs> he said, well, maybe nobody will pick it up. <laughs> but they did. <laughs> the only it's, one they picked up. It's, the value of that is you don't take yourself too seriously. If you describe yourself as a fixer and, and you're self-effacing about it, you know that you're not, you know, being serious about it. But uh, add a bit of humour to it, it just, it works. I had a gutful that day. I describe yeah. it as my Jeff Kennett moment. You know how Jeff would finally get sick of it and just say something he wasn't supposed to say? Yes. <laughs> Jeff well, used to drink 20 cups of coffee a day too. Sometimes that, that explains right? your behaviour. Right. Well, you, you overdose on caffeine. <laughs> yeah, wow. No, I, that day I'd really had enough because I'd actually saved the National Collaborative Research Infrastructure Scheme, which is what I had fixed. That was uh -huh. the subject we was completely lost, of course, yes. what this was about. And I had saved it, and but I didn't know how we were going to fund it. So when Spears said, well, how are you going to pay for it? I had no idea, to be honest. I think so I said, said, I think you'll find out. How have you fixed it? You'll and you said you'll find out in the budget, yes. I, I want it to be a surprise for you. <laughs> Why can't you tell us? I want it to be a surprise well, for you. Why didn't you try those lines on inside? Oh, dear. Anyway, well, it's been great catching up. <laughs> Thank you very much, Barry, for joining me. hope it hasn't been too onerous. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you for asking me along. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Pine Time was presented by me, Christopher Pine. Audio production by Darcy Thompson, produced by Matt Dwyer and the ever-patient executive producer, Jennifer Goggin. Listener.